Here we go. John chapter 1, verses uh, 6 through 13. Go ahead and listen. There is a man sent from God whose name was John. He's John the baptizer. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not that light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this is the word of the Lord. I want to pray. Jesus, thank you for what you've spoken. Thank you for your inspired word. We ask, God, that you would give us uh, ears to hear all that you have to speak. Give us eyes to see. And give us an ability cognitively to learn and grow. Um, But God, ultimately, change our hearts. Make our hearts um, moldable and pliable to trust you. Uh, We live in a world where so many forces have conspired to break our confidence and trust in anything, whether it be an institution, another human being, soulmate, spouse, friend, uh, and leaves our hearts wounded and uh, full of cynicism. And we ask, God, that you would reshape, reformat, remake our hearts so that we would trust you for who you are, and we invite you to do that even beginning now. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to jump right in. We're just going to basically go verse by verse through this. And uh, my invitation to you, actually, as we've been going through the Gospel of John, is to maybe read along. Find a good reading program and read along in the Gospel of John. I think you're going to, if your desire is to kind of really grow and learn what the book is all about, what John's really trying to communicate to us, uh, you would do yourself a huge service to just kind of dig in, to have your heart prepped and ready to go as you you, uh, jump in on a Sunday morning. But uh, with that being said, I want to just go through a little bit by little bit and make our way through this, and hopefully it'll all come together in the end. So uh, I want to take a look at verses uh, 6 through 8 again. Again, John, it says this, uh, a man who is sent by God or from God. This is obviously John, uh, the baptizer. Um, We know that John, the beloved, whoever that is, wrote this particular book, John the Beloved, right? Uh, John the Apostle wrote this book called this epistle that we call the Gospel, the Gospel of John. Um, Never does he refer to himself in this book by name. So even though he is an important character in the storyline of the life of Jesus, obviously he's one of the disciples, uh, he's one of the main apostles, one of the three, um, he never refers to himself uh, by name in this book. There's other ways by which he identifies himself. He'll call himself the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and we talked a little bit about that last week. Um, but anytime you see the name John in the book of uh, John, or the Gospel of John, it's probably a reference to this guy, John the Baptizer. So what we're told about this guy, John the Baptizer, why this is important, is what John's trying to do is, think of it this way, he's writing an account or a biography about the life of Jesus. Uh, He has a name. He has an agenda. His agenda is pretty clear. He's not kind of like opaque with regard to like, you know, what's your aim? What's your agenda? It's pretty clear. It's like my aim in writing this is I want you to believe. I want you to believe in Jesus. Like straight up. Like think about that. Like especially in our culture, we, we don't like that. We don't like people with ulterior motives that come into our lives and they're like, hey, what's up? I haven't talked to you in like eight years. Want to be part of my like little, you know, multi-level marketing gig? You're kind of like, no. I don't really like you, and that's kind of rude, and don't do that. That's really not nice, because we haven't talked in a long time, and for you to just kind of expect me to give you something, 
Uh, that's no, 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 thank you. Um, John's pretty clear. He's just like straight up like I am writing to you. My agenda is pretty clear. I want you to truly believe in the story of Jesus and not just believe cognitively in terms of like a myth or a fairy tale or a story, but so much so that it would radically revamp and change your life and transform you. That's his whole big aim. And it goes on to say, uh, so John's actually going to introduce a variety of witnesses. The word there is marturos. Uh, we get the English word, obviously, martyr from. And we've come to think of the word marturos or a martyr as being someone that dies for their faith. Uh, that was not the original meaning of the word, particular word. The word basically meant someone that bears witness. So think of an eyewitness. So there you are in the scene of a crime or a scene of some sort of significant happenstance. And uh, now you're called upon to testify what happened. What was your account of what took place? Uh, the moment you begin to open your mouth, and say, well, this is what took place. I was standing right here, and this person was over there, and I saw this event take place. Like, you are giving an account of what happened. You are literally, by definition, a witness or a martyr. Now, the reason why it morphed into the idea of one dying for their faith is because for first century followers of Jesus, that's exactly what happened. Because they were simply eyewitnesses. This is our account. What happened? Jesus healed me. He opened my eyes. I saw him make a lot of food. And he became like a living vending machine. It was amazing. We all benefited from the incredible goods that he provided for us. I can't deny that. Okay, well, we're going to kill you. That's what happened. I was a witness. They were a witness to something that happened. They could not deny what happened. Because their lives were changed by what happened. I mean, think about that. Put yourself in that context of what would you do if you saw something and you can't deny it, you can't turn away from it, you can't ignore it, you're changed by it. Like you're a living, breathing uh, testament of something significant that happened. That's what happened to these guys. And so many of them eventually would end up giving their life for this testimony that they held to about Jesus. John the Baptist, by the way, was one of those guys as well. Um, he would end up dying uh, for you know, his confidence in God and the things that he boldly proclaimed. Um, and it's, uh, we can spend a lot of time talking about John the baptizer, but I'm going to restrain myself for the sake of time. Um, now, he goes on to say in this little segment here, it says that uh, he was a witness to bear, uh, he was a witness to bear witness of all that Jesus was about. So it goes on to say, verse uh, 7, he came as a witness to bear witness of the light uh, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness of the light. So John the writer, the apostle, tells us about John the baptizer. Again, hopefully you're not confused by the Johns. Uh, his whole aim is like John the baptizer was not the light. He was not the main one that was uh, to be focused on. He had a role to play. He was significant in that his role was to point to Jesus, but he was not the one that we would look to for the redemption of our sins and the forgiveness of our sins and our lifestyles and a reformatting of our lives. He was the one that pointed to that Jesus, though. So, with that being said, as we move on now to verse uh, 9, it goes on to say, The true light gives light to everyone uh, who is coming into the world. So now he's going to tell us a little bit about this uh, original character that we saw a little bit last week. That, that whoever the word is, we obviously know him, spoiler alert, as Jesus, because most of us are familiar with the story of Jesus. Um, but uh, originally, when they would have been reading this, they would have like learned that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So at this point... In the reading of the story, they wouldn't have had a name attached to that. And then it goes on to describe this word is also the light. And this light uh, gives light to all. And so, uh, again, we still don't have a name. If you're originally just reading this for the very first time, by the time you get to verse 14, which we're not going to get to today, he'll identify that whoever this light is, whoever this word is, this word takes upon flesh and bone. 
enters into humanity, and we know him by the name Yeshua, Jesus. So we begin to identify that this Jesus has a particular role, and his role is to bring life and salvation and hope to all people. Now, again, I just want to pause and reflect upon the true light gives light to everyone was coming in the world. In verse 10, it says, and he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Let me talk real quick about coming into the world. Uh, we're going to see a lot of the description or the unpacking of the idea of the word world. Again, verse 13, and one of the most famous verses you see some crazy dude with a big old placard at a football game holding up, says John 3.16, right? That, that guy who's holding that sign, really, it's, it's one of the most fantastic verses of the Bible because it's an ind- indication of the heart of God. God loves this world. So the world that we see here is the idea of cosmos, the order of, of things. It's the, the way that God created this earth. God actually loves this planet. This is going to become shocking. In fact, verse 14 is, next week is going to get shocking because there was an idea in ancient culture and civilization that there was this dichotomy between the spirit and the flesh. That the flesh is evil, it's bad, our, our bodies are, are, are defiled and messed up, and the best that we can hope for is wanting to be apart from our body, separate from our body. In some way, we're living in a world that's not too dissimilar to that today. Uh, we just go by different ideas or ideologies that are kind of framed around that, that the body's bad, but the psyche, the self, is what's good. And if we can somehow modify the body to match the psyche, then that becomes good. When in reality, the whole storyline of the Bible is that actually the body is good, the psyche is good, um, the mind is good, the emotions are good, but we've lost somehow somewhere within the collectiveness of these things, the, the general goodness. And so uh, we're prone to kind of do what ancient Platonians had done and uh, followers of the ancient uh, writers of philosophy had done, and we kind of go down a pathway that's actually not biblical. And so what John's going to point out to us is that the, the body, the world, are good, though it suffers under disease. It's broken. It's, it's gravely ill. And God's aim is to not cast it out and to be done with this body or this planet, but to renew it, to remake it. This is incredibly hope-giving. And so this is the point that he's going to make, that this true light gives light to everyone uh, that as he was coming into the world. Now, I want to think about just two different things here. Number one is the word light, and then the other word is the word enlightenment. So light and enlightenment. Um, in prepping for this, I was thinking about just like, what, what is light, and how do we understand light, and how do we think about light? And I'm not going to go down a, uh, you know, a, a science class on that. There's probably others in here that would be able to do a much better job at that. So I'm going to restrain myself again here. But what's interesting to me is how light is perceived. And this has always been a weird, strange fascination of mine for a long time, is how we as human beings perceive light. I'm going to tell you something. That for the most part, most human beings, most of you all in this room, so the majority of you, are what are called trichromatics. Meaning, we all have three cones in our eyes, and they allow us to actually perceive light in the various coloration of light. Some of you uh, in this room are colorblind, meaning you don't perceive. And most of you that are colorblind, if you are colorblind, are going to be males. It's just kind of the way, the nature of things. Um, However... And you will not be able to see certain, obviously, lights, and there's variations of that for the most part. But most human beings, uh, we have these cones in our eyes that allow us to perceive light. So when you go outside, you see light, and on a day like today, obviously, it's a little bit dreary, and everything's just kind of monochromatic as it is anyhow, which is actually really good for, to- for photography. But the point of the matter is, as I digress, is that really at the end of the day, um, we have these cones that enable us to, in, in order to see 
light. Now, some people, for the most part, these are, these are actually females because they have uh, uh, the X chromosome. But for the most part, there's, there's, a, there's a unique a mutation, they would say, on the genetic makeup of, of some women that allows them to actually have an extra cone. They call these, uh, I'm to make sure I get the word right, tetrachromatics. And they are able to actually see multiple uh, framework of more colors. So uh, trichromatics, they're able to see up to a million different colors. Uh, tetrachromatics, they're able to see up to a hundred million colors. It's fascinating. Um, and they've been able to do studies. And just, I'm, I'm out, of, out of curiosity. Are, are any tetrachromatics here? Anybody? There might be a couple. Are you really? You are? Oh, you are? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Didn't mean, didn't mean you were being a tetrachrome, but um, yeah. So it's, it's fascinating. I mean, just do, do the research. It's, it's really fascinating to, to, to think about this. So, so that means that there are some people that by way of this, this genetic uh, mutation or change, it's actually a, 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 an amazing mutation, they're able to see colors that you and I just cannot even Im- imagine or envision. We just can't even imagine it. But they're there, but we just can't see them. And this seems to be similar to like what, what John's saying is that the light is in the world. Not all are affected by the light. Not all see the light. Not are changed. But Jesus has come in order to open our spiritual eyes to be able to, to see who he truly is. To be transformed. Be brought into that goodness in the beauty. And this leads me to the second word, which is the idea of enlightenment. And I think all human beings, so the idea of just light and enlightenment kind of go hand in hand. The idea is like, how do I step into a place where I'm able to be more enlightened or see things uh, that's a big idea. And we would use that word enlightened, enlightened. I think our world today, more than ever, wants to step into a, a moment of enlightenment. But the question is, is how do we achieve enlightenment? Where, where does it come from? Does it come from going to school? Do you learn? Again, obviously, we live in a college town. And for some, it's just you go to school because that's just the default of what you do. Mom and dad told you to go to school. You're going to school. Therefore, some of you are just, you know, again, you're, you're, you're driven. You're like, I, w- I want to reach you know, a, a great knowledgeable status. I want to get a good job. I want to reach some degree of enlightenment so I can get a really good job. That's awesome. You're kind of driven in that nature. Uh, but the point of the matter is, is how do we as human beings, and you can call this like moral enlightenment, just goodness enlightenment. How do we live as human beings uh, in an enlightened state? Again, a modern world, a word for that. Uh, it's kind of been a past you know, I don't know, 10 years plus. This idea of woke, you know, how, how do you enter into a state where you're awake, awoke to certain things, certain ideas, certain ideologies. But the point of the matter is, is it's really all the same general theme of, of enlightenment. How do we reach some degree of enlightenment? Um, I, if you do a uh, Google search for this, um, immediately what you'll get is you'll get, the, actually this is kind of odd, the very first uh, hit on the Google search for me was the path to enlightenment, which was actually a link to a World of Warcraft thing that's going on. Um, but that's, that's not really what I'm interested in. Um, but it immediately takes you to kind of the, uh, the, the ideology of, of Hinduism um, and, and the path to enlightenment. And what was fascinating is in this, there are typically four paths that within that particular religious um, and philosophical framework is a path to knowledge, a path to prayer, a path to right action, a path to royalty or a royal path. And within each of these and within the royal path, there's eight practices that if you practice these things on a regular basis, as well as the other four upstream, uh, you will enter into an ultimate state of self-enlightenment. Self-enlightenment. Now, again, this is from more of an Eastern perspective. We have Western versions or variations in which this has come into. As, as Westerners, there's a variety of ways in which we still believe this, even though we might not use the same language. We would just say self-actualization. 
self, we would say this, living into my authentic self, that's enlightenment. The question is, how do you get there? How do you become self-actuated? How do you become truly, truly aware of your deepest, innermost desires, especially if it's a moving target? Would you agree with that? It's a moving target. How do I know this? Just look at photos of you from five years ago and just judge your haircut. You're going to look at your clothing choice. You're going to be like, what was I thinking? I can't believe I even wore that. What was I thinking? And by the way, it seems like clothing from the 2000s and 90s that are back, like these big baggy like cargo pants. Dear God, <laughs> please do something about our world. But the point that, I'm at, that I would make is this. How do we reach enlightenment? How do we get there? And it depends on what path that you would take. But the question is, do we fully reach Enlightenment is self-actualization really going to lead to that fullness, that freedom of life, or is that a new form of enslavement to these desires and these standards that I have to now give all my energy towards? And what if I get canceled out? Or what if someone doesn't receive or accept my authentic self? What happens if in the midst of meditation and achieving certain yogic poses, if I still feel this deep ache of anxiety inside of me, now what? Where do I then go? What are the alternatives? Again, many people in today's culture, they're leaving churches in droves. We know this based upon the stats. We know this based upon COVID. Our church has been affected by it. I've talked with guys that run gyms. Their gyms are affected by it. Uh, uh, the religious world has been impacted by it. But for many people that have left, especially churches, I've just recently read an article, uh, for the most part, some of which are just getting out of habit, some of which are COVID circumstances that kind of misled them, some of which are polarizations based upon political choices and decisions and frameworks and ideologies, uh, some of which have just gotten out of habit, some of which are the actual institution itself has failed, and therefore it's kind of caused people to be like, do I really want to be part of a church that's toxic or messed up or filled with really not great people. Is this really the pathway I want to go? But what they're saying is that people moving out of Christian organizations, they're not becoming non-religious. In other words, they're not moving out of like a Christian framework into like, I'm just a religious. I, I have no religion now. They're actually saying, no, they're actually becoming more religious. But here's the deal. They're becoming religious based upon sort of a fragmented piece together. Um, what they would call a bespoken type of a religion where you are picking and choosing little bits of pieces here and there. At the end of the day, what that means, you as an individual are responsible to put together your own religious ideology. Can I just pause real quick and just point out the obvious? Do you realize how absolutely exhausting that is? The sum total, the weight of your future, your past, your present guilt, shame, regret, complexes is all on your shoulder to figure it out. Do you realize how exhausting that is? And what the gospel writer here is telling us is that enlightenment is possible. Not through these steps, not through these paths, not through bespoken, bespoken religion, not through uh, remixing your certain Christian faiths with other Eastern mystical practices and somehow creating and crafting a religion that works and fits just for you, not through spiritual enlightenment, not through somehow uh, discerning who you are truly deep within yourself, but really true life, true light comes, not through a practice, not through a journey, not through a discipline, 
but through a person. A person. And John's going to eventually tell us who this person is, that this God steps into his own story, which really is our world, filled with brokenness, filled with hurt, pain, guilt, shame, regret, cycles. It says, I've come to give you life. I've come to take all of your pain and brokenness and hurt and sense of meaninglessness and lostness and loneliness and do something about it and to help you and to give you life. This is what the story of John is all about. And as we go on in this, I'm going to wrap it up with a few final things. Verse 12, he says, and all who receive him, verse 12, will become children of God. All who receive him will become children of God. This kind of raises a question is, again, sort of in our modern world, there's a thought that aren't all, by way of question, aren't all people children of God? In some sense, potentially, possibly, yes, if what you mean by that is kind of like what Paul the Apostle meant in Acts chapter 17, verse 28. And I'll just read it to you. He says this. Um, he's quoting an, an ancient uh, philosopher. And he says this, In him we live and move and we have our being, as even one of your own poets said. And he goes on to say, For we are indeed his offspring. In other words, this is Paul's way of just kind of like giving a, a hat tip at this ancient philosophical poet saying, yeah, In some way, yeah, we're, we're all kind of like, we, we all bear the image of God. We're all part of this offspring of God. We all have you know, born uh, the image of God all the way upstream to God himself. But what we see throughout the rest of the Bible is actually, no, not, not all human beings are truly born of God. And this is where John's going to get even more specific with this as the story goes on. But one thing I think that's important for us to note is that for John and other New Testament writers, the idea or the concept of being a child of God ultimately means having this intimate personal relationship with Yahweh, with God. Like Abraham did, like Isaac did, something like Jacob, something like David, something like Moses. Where there's this interaction that says, God, I belong to you. You are my God. You are the one that I look to. You are the one that I allow and invite and align with. And let whatever you say, I will submit to. We do not like that word submit. It's deeply offensive to our modern sensibilities. It's frustrating to us because we like to think of ourselves as in control of our own lives and in control of all that we do. And the idea of submitting feels like oppression. It feels like someone is actually taking advantage of me and nobody wants to live in that for obvious reasons. But the point that I would make is this, is that this is the language that New Testament writers describe in terms of humans made in the image of God and God who created them. We align our lives to be under submission to this God who loves us. And this is actually really good news because what it means to fully be in submission to God is actually spells out in the long run freedom for me from my own constant demands of perfection that I put upon myself and that others might be putting upon me. Instead, it allows me to say, Jesus, you are my father. God, you are my father. God, you have called me your own. I am your son, I am your daughter, I bear your image, and, I, and you are loved by me, you've demonstrated your love for me. And this is what John the writer is telling these people, reminding them, is that what John tells this 
community of people is that he announces the coming of Jesus. This coming of Jesus is like a light. Those that trust this God then find themselves entering into the light. They uh, are, are, are brought, there's an awareness that's brought to their brokenness, and yet Jesus says, I'm going to cover your brokenness. That's what I've come to do. And then lastly, as we close up this little section here in verse 13, it says, um, those that are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And I want to just reflect upon last idea or thought is this concept of being born of God. And this is going to be something that John's going to continue to, uh, to develop and cultivate. Um, it's you know, been popularized over the past, I don't know, 50 years in our culture, the idea of being born again. And some have kind of even used the language of like, are you a born again Christian? Like, uh, frankly, it's kind of a weird phrase because what it means to be a Christian is that means that you are born again. If you're born again, that means that you're actually a follower of Jesus. You're a Christian. So, so, so yes, it's kind of like a, uh, a, a double phrase. But the fact is that what John is saying is that if you received who Jesus is, take his testimony from these testifiers, John the baptizer, John the beloved apostle, other New Testament writers, they are basically telling you that what God has come to do is good. And you can believe it and trust it and then enter into that story. In other words, whatever story it is that you've been living in up to that point, whatever that storyline is, whether it's like the story of my own self-actualization, my own story of achievement and accomplishment and a power and ability and uh, uh, all of these things, or my story is one of despair and hurt and pain and brokenness. Whatever story it is that you have been living up into this moment, the invitation of John is to bring whatever story that is to the one who loves you and gave himself for you. That is inviting you to step into that light and to truly encounter life at this guttural base level. And he says, this is the light that has come into the world. And those who believe in him, those who trust him, will find themselves being made alive. And this is what I think John wants for us to continue to be reminded of. So the question is, what does it really mean? How do I really know if I'm born again or if I'm actually born from above or made alive? Just a couple questions I would just simply ask you is like, what, what does your heart leap for? What are your deepest longings. I don't want to distinguish this from your strongest longings. Some of your strongest longings might be like, you know, I want to have a child. I want to have a, I want to have a mate. I want to not be lonely. Those are, those are good desires. They're strong desires. But deepest desires is, the deepest desire is, I want God. Sometimes I don't know where he's at. Sometimes I'm not confident if he even answers my prayers. Sometimes I find myself disappointed. Sometimes I find my own morality out of sync with his desires for my life. Sometimes I find the cultural ideologies that are just swirling and being forced on my throat over and over, out of sync with the values that seem to be uh, appearing throughout Scripture. There's a lot that doesn't make sense to me about God, but somewhere in the deepest core of who I am as a human being, I just I want God. I want to know him. I want to finish this with this thought, is that for me, I, I, I moved from a relationship of not knowing God to a relationship of knowing God right when I was around 15, almost 16 years old. I was not a Christian. I, I was raised in the Catholic Church. I knew about God. In fact, uh, not a lot theologically really shifted for me. Like, I, I, I still believed in the Trinitarian God even after I got saved. But the point of the matter is, is I literally went from a state of not wanting, longing for God, 
Like, I wanted God as sort of an accessory to my life, as something that I can just, every once in a while, when I needed it, when life's hard, I can just, like, throw up a prayer to the man in the sky, and maybe he'll answer me, maybe he won't, whatever. Maybe if I say a few prayers, I'll kind of earn his favor, whatever. But something happened in my soul that can only be described as being made alive, being born again. I've told the story before, but in that moment, like, I was talking with my stepmom. We were, like, again, I've mentioned this before. I was in a van again in our Catholic Church's parking lot, I had just gotten busted for doing some stupid things, and I was grounded from surfing. That was like hell for a young 15, 16-year-old kid that was just like, you know, dependent upon the bus to get to the beach. And it was like my life had crumbled, right? I'd been found out. I wasn't allowed to go surfing. I was in absolute desperation. And yet in that moment, my stepmom was talking about, hey, Jesus forgives us of our sin. And I don't know what it was. Nothing profound, she said, but it just clicked in my soul in that instant. Like, it's like my eyes were open, my spiritual eyes. It was like a fourth cone just grew. And I was able to see something that I had never seen before. It was there the whole time. I just didn't see it. I was made alive. I was born again in that instant, in that moment. God did something for me. And this is the beauty of what Jesus can do for all of us, is make us brand new, transform us in an instant. So again, I just I ask you, like, what, what are your deepest desires as distinct from your strongest desires? Do you, long, do, you, do you have a framework in your life where you build your life around God? Where you, I, I want, God, your ways to be my ways. As imperfect as I am, as broken as I am, as huge as my intentions are, but how oftentimes I fail to accomplish it, I really, at the end of the day, I want to be with you and to be like you. That's really what it means to be born again, to have your life transformed. And now you're heading in a direction. Some have said, it's not about the perfection of your life. Oftentimes we're like looking at the perfect act, attributes and actions that we're doing and we're like, get really discouraged. I'm like, I'm not doing really good as a Christian. Like, that's okay. None of us are. But it's about the direction. The direction. Is it headed Godward? C.S. Lewis would put it this way, and I'm, I'm done. Uh, just amazing. Actually, this is one of my, my, my favorite quotes by C.S. Lewis of all times. It's actually part of a larger little segment here in this book, Mere Christianity, but I'm just going to read for the sake of time just a little segment right here. It says, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but it's like turning a horse into a winged creature. That's what it means to be a Christian. A lot of times people have moralized Christianity. They're like, cool, Christianity is about being a better person. Kind of, but, but absolutely not. I mean, I mean it's, it's absolutely not about that. Like you would expect, and you should expect, if the life of God has been birthed in you, yes, you will begin to take a shape in your life that begins to do good and act good and live good and love good and be a promoter of good and protector of good and procurer of good, all of these things. But really at the end of the day, it's about becoming an erratic, a totally different person than what you are capable in and of yourself to produce. How do you get that? I have, I have no answers other than to say what Scripture says. Those that call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Like there's something that happens when God is invited into that space of the throne of your life and just says, God, I, I need you. I, I need this. In summary, I want to wrap it up with final thoughts on them. Last three things I just think about that this little segment of Scripture teaches. Number one is that Jesus is a historical reality. He's not a myth. He's not a fairy tale. He's not a fable. 
How do we know this? Because we know that hundreds of thousands of people living in the first century that would have been recipients of this letter, many of them would have died. They were witnesses. They were testifiers of the life that Jesus brought them. And they were willing to die for their confidence in Jesus. So what historians will tell us, they'll just say, look, we, you can deny the fact that Jesus lived, but you cannot deny the fact that thousands, hundreds of thousands of people gave their life died, brutally died at the hands of the mob because they claim that Jesus is Lord. So something happened in this narrative that we're being told that brought a lot of people to life and they were willing to die for it because they knew that they were going to live again. Secondly, not all people who will receive the testimony of Jesus. So again, we can hear what Jesus has to say. You can be someone that grew up in the church your whole life. Like, you know the stuff. You know what Christians are supposed to look like. You know what Christians should act like. And you know this stuff. But the question is, is have you received the testimony of Jesus? Have you received the testimony of Jesus? Not someone else, but you. Have you trusted this? Lastly, those who receive the testimony of Jesus will be made alive. New life will happen in you. This is extremely good news because it's not about what you do for God. It's not about your performance. It's not about your action. It's not about the journey. It's not about how, how massive your intentions are to just be spiritual. Whatever that means, it's not about learning something new. It's not about going down some sacred path, all of which might have a variety of benefit upon your life as a human being, but none of those things will make you a winged creature. That's something that God alone can do. So as we close, I want for us to be reminded of the incredible, incredible grace of God that's here right now. For you. For you. How about we all stand and I want to pray over us. If you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, my hope would be today that you would. That you would like truly, like just like John says, like here's my straight up, honest, like forthright, intention. My motivation is to turn you from a skeptic, a cynic, a disbeliever into a radical believer, one who has given their life entirely to Jesus and in turn been made radically alive. So I want to pray over us. Uh, Jesus, right now, I just pray for my friends, my family, just uh, anybody that's in this room that has either trusted you. God, would you just continue to strengthen them on this journey? People that might be far from you, would you draw them near to yourself? Would you open their hearts, open their eyes, Give them the ability just to cry out to you. If that's you right now, just cry out to him. Just ask him. As weak and as broken, as maybe illiterate as it might come out, just say whatever you're able to muster. God, make me new. Show me yourself. Transform me. So God, as we scatter now, empower us to be people that live like you, look like you, act like you. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. And now may the grace, mercy, and peace from the triune God be yours.